Hello, hello, and welcome back to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and we are continuing season six of the podcast, looking at the best films of 2020. These are streaming favorites from the year, as well as possible awards contenders for the coming months. So far, we've looked at movies like the great documentaries Dick Johnson is Dead and Welcome to Chechnya, and some notable indies like The Assistant. Uh, Coming up, we'll be looking at titles like Nomadland, One Night in Miami, On the Rocks, and many more. Today's movie is one that I would not be surprised to see winning some awards in a few months. It's called Mank from director David Fincher, starring Gary Oldman, Amanda Seyfried, Lily Collins, and several other recognizable names. It tells the -the behind-the-scenes story, uh, or a version of it, of the writing of one of the greatest films ever made, Citizen Kane. Uh, Gary Oldman plays the film's screenwriter, Herman Mankiewicz, Mank of the title, and follows his writing process, his dealings with Orson Welles, and his fascinating relationships with William Randolph Hearst and uh, Marion Davies. It's a nitty-gritty look at kind of Hollywood royalty and sort of a mythical time in movie history, so this is definitely going to appeal to a lot of cinephiles. On this very podcast, back in episode 24, we discussed Citizen Kane as part of our classic movie starter pack. My guest for that season was Rance Collins, a writer and podcaster and basically a walking encyclopedia of classic Hollywood knowledge. So as soon as I heard that this was the subject of David Fincher's next movie, I knew Rance has got to be on the podcast i've got to try to make that happen so i'm very pleased that he is here i'm having him back for sort of a follow-up in a way to our previous citizen kane discussion rance thank you so much for coming back to the show and how have you been i'm great it's great to be back to the show i i you know i'm going to be watching all these movies as they hit streaming so i'm just going to go ahead and throw my name in the hat have me back whenever you're like you can't find somebody just be like oh maybe rance will do it just call and i'll watch the movie (laughs) yeah that's that's something i've come to realize about you is i'm always like should i ask i don't want to bother him and he's just like yeah you're always just down to do it let's Let's do it in five minutes yeah (laughs) let's talk about movies i love it uh well rance when i had you on the podcast in the past we've talked a lot about classic cinema we've also talked a lot about the oscars i'll also stop here and recommend by the way rance has another podcast which is called the envelope please in which he and his co-host sam are podcasting through every best picture winner uh, and not only that but getting me a ton of historical context for the oscar ceremony year by year it's fascinating i haven't listened to all of it yet but i, I make sure to listen regularly and it's uh it's great and he and sam are so fun to listen to so highly recommend that so anyway just before we get into mank i'm curious what you think about this coming oscar season 20 2021 i guess uh it's it's an unusual what what's your thoughts you know it's so interesting because usually at about this time we would we would know pretty pretty succinctly what the nominees mm. might be yeah because usually by this time we've had quite a few movies released uh and we've had uh, awards go out mm-hmm. from some of the uh newspaper associations who always you know like new york film critics and mm-hmm. you know um all the different uh papers that give out awards typically do so in december you know, we would have a clearer idea of where the season was heading, yeah. but because of the extension mm-hmm. um, and also because of the lack of theatrical releases or true theatrical releases, mm-hmm. uh, it's a whole new ball game. 
Yeah. There isn't the typical awards campaign season uh, where, you know, if you were here in Los Angeles, you would uh, you would know that awards season is truly a season where there are a series of very uh, hoity-toity industry <laughs> events mm-hmm. <laughs> where, you know, people uh, invite you to screenings through SAG or PGA or DGA um, and have Q&As and uh, all uh, things hosted for critics, things hosted for um you know, people in the industry and mm-hmm. all of them are aimed at getting votes yeah. and awards. And that whole season just doesn't exist yeah. in the same way. Is any of that kind of thing happening virtually? Is that possible or is it pretty much just not happening? Well, yeah, I, I think that there are events happening virtually, especially like more of the press junket mm-hmm. side of it. I don't know. Honestly, I do have a friend who who used to work in awards who I need to talk to about mm-hmm. this, actually. Uh, because I I don't know if they're just doing I I mean like everything <laughs> everything's already available di- digitally yeah. you know it's 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 mm-hmm. so interesting everything's going to be released on these platforms I'm sure these people are getting advanced screeners as mm-hmm. usual and whatnot but I mean everybody's just going to watch Mank on Netflix yeah. you know mm-hmm. everybody's just going to it's like uh, you watch... have to see it a week early great like <laughs> it's not yeah it's no quite have the appeal. it's yeah. it's like a whole and, you know, hopefully this doesn't have, I think for those of us who truly love movies, we were hoping that this doesn't have a a, a negative, um, a negative effect in the future because yeah. there are film, co- there are film distribution companies that are truly um, suffering yeah. right now, mm-hmm. uh, theater chains. And uh, we need people. I just want to take this opportunity to say when the opportunity to go back to the theater safely is there, which, you know, maybe this summer or next yeah. fall before mm-hmm. that happens, get out of the house and go to a movie theater. Yeah. You know, you've been watching movies at home for you'll you'll have been watching movies at home for a year and a half. You can go <laughs> you go to the movies and try to support the medium in the way that it was meant to be seen, because I got to say something like the movie that we're about to talk about, mm-hmm. I think would have really benefited from a theatrical experience. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and we're yeah. recording this just two days after the, the big Warner brothers news about everything getting a mm-hmm. day and date streaming next year. And so everyone's anxious about what that means long-term. So yes, it's, it's a mess. Uh, I feel like for yeah. Warner brothers, that may be more of a move to try to get people to sign up for HBO max. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, yeah. Mm-hmm. because the, I, I feel a little bad for WB because I think that um, I think the pandemic really screwed over their rollout for HBO mm, Max mm-hmm, yeah. because the big thing that was going to happen was they were going to have that Friends reunion oh, yeah. that was going to premiere the day that HBO Max rolled out. Yeah. <laughs> and had that Friends reunion happened, they probably would have had a much different situation on day yeah. one, yeah. you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> um but it didn't happen because of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so, that and and, and uh, I've heard there's just been confusion because they have what HBO Next and HBO or now and go and so yeah, it's, there's just confusion it's around that. Yeah, they could have. They I I mean I'm sure everybody thought of this like why didn't you just expand HBO Go? Why didn't right. you make it? Why wasn't it called Warner Brothers? Like what was the 
you know, but here they have Max, yeah. they're going with it. And yeah. uh, there is some interesting content coming out on, on HBO Max in the next few months, including yeah. some movies that will probably be in awards. Yeah. And I'll go ahead and just discussion. say, too, I think it, it's for me, it's one of the better streaming services right now, because even beyond the theatrical stuff that's coming, it's got a lot of TCM stuff. So if you don't have TCM, you can watch a lot of classic movies. There's like a tcm hub on there and then studio ghibli if you're into anime stuff at all those are streaming for the first time Mm -hmm. so it it has a a a large catalog and i mean and plus i honestly think it has the best collection of movies of any of the streaming platforms it has the criterion (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. collection Mm -hmm. um and i feel like the other like hulu and and netflix are much more television focused yeah you know Mm -hmm. um and and over on hbo max you know they have they have some good shows, as in, you know, they yeah. have, I, I don't know a lot about their originals, but they have some good documentaries and they have some good uh, historical WB programming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in HBO, and of course, they have all of the HBO stuff, which is, you know, very high quality. Yeah. But they, they have such a robust selection of films, mm-hmm. both classic and modern, yeah. um, that you can't find anywhere else. Yeah, I was just looking today, too, and they have a cool, in the classic section, they have this cool little Film School 101 thing. And so you can watch Casablanca right there and Citizen Kane and, and Jaws and, like, all these um, huge titles that they've they've just got lined up for you. It's, it's pretty cool. So anyway, enough HBO talk, yeah. I guess. But uh, this movie is not on HBO. We're going to talk about Mank, which it's is a on Netflix. Netflix. <laughs> so there, there's your streaming breakdown for this. It is, it is weird to me that... Um, I don't think Citizen Kane is streaming for free anywhere right now, is it? Just on HBO Max, yeah. Oh, it's on. It is. On it HBO is. Max. Yeah, that's it right. It is on there. So it's, yeah, it's so Netflix weird to is me supporting that, HBO in a way. <laughs> in a way, they are. It's a little surprising to me that they didn't like pay a ridiculous amount of money yeah. to put it on Netflix because you would think they would want it to be there as like the perfect companion piece. Yeah, it's a great you know? feature. Yeah. But they didn't. Yeah, because. But I, I think regardless, this might end up benefiting HBO Max because they might get some sub- subscriptions from people curious yeah. to watch Citizen Kane now. Yes. And anything to get people to watch a classic is always good for me. So. Yes, I agree. Well, with that in mind, let's, I guess, move on and talk about Mank. It's a modern-day version of Coyote. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Houseman tells me we have you just where we want you. I understand we've 90 days. Let's aim for 60. He's just got a month. LB, this is my brother, Joe. Nice to meet you, Joseph. Walk with me. What makes me cry? Emotion. Where do I feel emotion? Here, here, and here. (laughs) All right, let's talk about Mank. So, as I said at the top of the show, this film is about Herman Mankiewicz and the process of writing Citizen Kane, including a lot of the personal and professional relationships that fed into the story he was writing. Uh, It was directed by David Fincher, who also directed movies like Fight Club, The Social Network, and most recently, Gone Girl. 
Uh, the script for Mank was written by David Fincher's late father, Jack. And from what I've read, this has been sort of a passion project for David Fincher since his earliest days of being a filmmaker. He even had a different cast lined up at one point, I think in the 90s, uh, but that was postponed. And so now it's finally here. Uh, and I must say, I'm a fan of it. Um, it's got that whole like movies about movies thing going for it that critics tend to love and awards ceremonies tend to love. So I'm sure that will play into uh, its success if it, if it finds that. Um, one thing I didn't expect was, I guess, how political this is and, and some of the, the modern residents of the political side of it. Uh, Rance, you are someone who is very interested in classic Hollywood and very interested in politics. So I'm curious, <laughs> yes. how, how does that mixture of kind of movies and politics, uh, almost like political intrigue, uh, work for you in this? Well, it's interesting that they that they included that because you don't hear um, a lot about it in that particular era. Usually yeah. you don't start hearing about politics mixing, mixing with movies in the way that people explore that period, at least mm -hmm. until you get to the communist witch hunt and the yeah. late forties, early fifties. Mm -hmm. But, um, the, it, very much so, you know, Louis B. Mayer was indeed a very active member of the Republican party in California. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was, um, a lot of conversations that happened between Hollywood and, uh, Washington in in those days, uh, particularly because uh, what isn't really discussed in the film, there was a whole there was a whole movement after the 1920s uh, brought about some salacious material in silent films, mm -hmm. and then that kept going in the early era of sound in a period they called pre-code um and the pre-code movies had material that you don't necessarily expect to find in classic films yeah. where people talk a little bit more frankly about sex and violence mm -hmm. um and because of that there was a risk that there was going to be federal censorship bans mm -hmm. on movies um and that is why the uh, Hayes Code came into play mm -hmm. in 1934 is when that went strictly into effect. And that was because they were trying to prevent um, federal uh, government from getting in and censoring movies yeah. for them. So they were censoring themselves, basically. Uh, so a lot of that relationship had to do with keeping things, keeping the industry afloat, yeah. keeping... Mm -hmm. Uh, keeping everything going and in addition i mean you know for the classic era all the studios own their own theater uh theaters and mm -hmm. so um which is apparently again possible because yeah, the I heard about that yeah. <laughs> because it the paramount decision of 48 law. was struck down yeah mm -hmm. um but uh politics and hollywood were very much uh tied together and um of all of the studio heads Louis Mayer was most certainly the most involved, um, at least with the Republican Party. So um, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, for it, it really, really is. And of course, uh, we touch on William Randolph Hearst throughout the film, mm -hmm. who indeed was the founding father of <laughs> the type of journalism 
that has uh, become so problematic. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> um, with cable news, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I listened back to our discussion of Citizen Kane, and we kind of talked about that back then, about, you know, the the yellow journalism we see in that film is, is very much, yeah, the model and being exploited in political arenas just the way we see in Citizen Kane happening. So it's very interesting. And, well, you know, this... and the way we mm-hmm. see... It, the way we see it in Mank, whenever um, they're that scene at the beach when they're listening to the radio and mm. he recognizes the woman's voice and knows yeah. it's an actress mm. who's mm-hmm. um, or a rich lady who's actually not poor, but yeah, you know, <laughs> telling the story about I'm poor and that's why I'm voting Republican in this election and all yes. that. Yeah, yes. yeah, all, all the up and Sinclair um, stuff was really interesting and informative for me because I, i'm mm-hmm. you know it, i feel like it's a jumping off point i should probably like read actual history books about this because it's it's really fascinating and, and i'm curious how much they because it really seems to align interestingly with modern elections uh i mean he's almost a bernie bernie sanders like figure talking about socialist revolutions and all of that um and and also i mean there's just a familiar feeling with watching election results and and just being really disappointed with what happens <laughs> uh, but i thought yeah. visually visually speaking that that election party scene was mm. probably the most striking mm. in the film yeah. um yeah. yeah uh that was a very that was a very interesting sequence yeah. um anyway yeah. uh yeah so story wise there's there's a lot of there's a lot to to mine politically yeah. for sure yeah and then the whole propaganda storyline so the studio is actually making propaganda films and kind of where that goes which i won't spoil that that was just a really compelling part of this movie and, and i just didn't expect any political stuff so that was that was pretty interesting um yeah maybe, maybe they can kind of transition into just talking historically in general about this so uh, again when you and i talked about citizen kane we at that point, we kind of broke down the the Mankiewicz family tree. I don't think we need to fully rehash that, um, but it's interesting because you know Mankiewicz personally. Uh, yes, I know the grandson of the person this movie's about. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ben Mankiewicz. So that's Herman's grandson. H- have you heard? I actually found a quote from him online, but I'm curious if you heard any reaction from him or his family about this. I haven't talked to him personally about mm-hmm. this, but um, I so I guess I'm just as informed as you are on his. <laughs> on his uh, reactions because I've just seen the interviews and, and, yeah. and read about them. But uh, yes, for quite a while um, up until this year, actually I was uh, the, his assistant. Mm. Um, I've transitioned to other work since then, but I still am a freelance writer for Turner classic movies. Mm. And I write uh, some of the scripts that end up going, that that he ends up repeating on air um he edits them but uh uh so i i have been in my head at least once a month when i write some of these scripts um as i try to mimic his way of speaking (laughs) so you have sort of some personal hooks into this movie then it's kind of an interesting yes yeah but ben is someone i i know pretty well and he um he is a writer as well just like his grandfather Mm. and uh while he doesn't write uh screenplays he um is he is a, someone with a journalism background and he is very uh particular um and very perfectionist in everything that he does and it was interesting to watch a movie about his grandfather um where you see some of those same shades of perfectionism and fighting for your work so i, I definitely see personality similarities mm-hmm. Well, I can read the the quote that I found. Uh, I think he was on 
it was he was interviewed by deadline or something I'll, I'll link it in the show notes if i can find it but uh here's the quote was uh, it fully comports with my image of my grandfather as relayed by mostly by my father but also my mother the few years that she got to spend with him uh, that he was the smartest person in the room the funniest person in the room even when he had been drinking which was often and that he was never mean ever my father really admired him even though of course he wished he hadn't self-destructed in the way that he did so that was really interesting and and yeah, if that's uh, true, then I think the the movie got it right in that way because I think that some of those those scenes where they're sitting around the fire talking with at these social events are probably the most compelling parts for me. Uh, just kind of listening to the the banter and yes. the political. And yeah, he's clearly drunk and kind of poking poking at people, but uh, in a way that's um, respectful somehow, or, or at least uh, good natured. I think, but yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah definitely those those scenes i thought all the sequences with um uh marion davies were the strongest for me mm-hmm. um and she's always in those group scenes i think that amanda seyfried yes seyfried um, i think yeah seyfried i think that she um she pulls out a very strong i i, I fully expect her to get a best supporting actress mm-hmm. nomination yeah um she does a very good job and i i think that the actors should all be commended to for the way that they um, embody the speech patterns mm-hmm. yeah. of the day um, and the kind of transatlantic accent that was in vogue at the time. Uh, there is a, um, there's an authenticity to their performances that I don't always see in period films. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. um I think the strongest parts of the movie, the two strongest elements are the acting and the writing. Yeah. I was going to call out Amanda Seyfried as well as, as probably my favorite performance in it. Uh, I think she's just really, uh, I don't know, great screen presence. And also, yeah, from what I know of the period seemed to kind of nail that the other, um, one that I think was just so much fun to watch was, uh, his name is Arliss Howard as, as Louis B. Mayer. And just, he's, larger than life feeling a little bit and, and also very manipulative, but it really funny. I, I thought it was a great performance from him. Um, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, there, yeah, there's definitely, I also, um, Oh, what's the actor's name? Uh, the guy who does Orson Welles. Yeah, I was going to mention him um, too. Tom Burke is his name. Yeah. Tom Burke. He, um, he doesn't look exactly like him, but he does nail his, I mean, he sounds yeah. exactly like him. He, the he, voice is perfect. Yeah. The voice was the perfect, perfect. And it, and the scenes where you, he's just uh, disembodied on the phone, I, mm. w- I thought it was. Is that Orson Welles? <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a very, um, that was very, very good. Yeah. I, I meant to look this up too, but at the end, there's a clip of an interview. And I was like, I was wondering, is that actually the real interview from Orson Welles? Or is this the, the Tom Burke actor again? And I don't know the answer to that. Maybe I can look it up in a second here. But I don't actually know the answer to that too. I, I assumed perfect. it was real based on the fact that it sounded different than everything else he had heard. Yeah, I think it probably must be because it also just a blank screen and it kind of gives you context and a caption of what's happening so yeah it must be i'm gonna just assume that it is <laughs> yeah, um, i i feel like that's fair well i wanted to talk to you about i mean the historical accuracy of this because that's a another huge question and kind of hotly debated uh, and i'm kind of only uh, dipping my toes into to understanding all the controversy around it but um 
who actually wrote this movie is that's a big question uh, who actually wrote citizen kane that is um some people claim that orson welles was more involved and others saying he wasn't at all um mm-hmm. so i wondered if do you can you break down some of the different ideas around that that question yeah that's where this movie i think gets a little uh, hard to track and where mm. where people might have issues um is uh, most accounts seem to agree that Orson Welles had a very heavy hand mm-hmm. in writing the film. Um, and this takes a much more um, justice for the writers mm-hmm. um, yeah. position, which is a message that I really, really like and respond to, but I'm not quite sure that in this particular instance, it's entirely accurate. Yeah. Like I think it was more of a, like a ha- you know, the truth is halfway, you know, it's right. not mm-hmm. all Orson Welles and it's not all Herman Mankiewicz. It's, it's something between those two narratives. Yeah. And, uh, I, I mean, quite certainly, uh, Herman Mankiewicz was a brilliant writer, um, as was his, um, his brother, Joe, who's far more well-known and who mm. we talked a lot about on <laughs> all about Eve. Um, yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he just has a small part in this movie and you don't really get an idea mm. of the impact he would end up having. I mean, like, honestly, uh, it's, it's Herman Mankiewicz's life ends up being rather sad mm-hmm. um, because he does go. He is gone way too early because of whatever personal demons he might have had. But um, but, you know, in a way, I think the, the thing I think the intention behind this movie is almost to restore the legacy of an unsung hero of mm. the golden age yeah. um, who whose life was kind of overshadowed by his brother who would become this Oscar darling mm. and who would make movies that might not outshine Citizen Kane historically, but there's more of him and his name is on top of them as yeah. opposed to Herman's who is, you know, who's dwarfed by Orson Welles. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, so I think that, I think that the, the movie maybe probably overstates hmm. the amount of impact. I uh, not the impact. I think it probably overstates how little Orson Welles did. Right. Mm-hmm. With the script. But I think ultimately the intention is good enough that it can be forgiven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think I agree with that. So, so my understanding of kind of the, the issue is that you know, we have this tendency to idolize directors and assume that no one else did anything on the movie. Right. And especially someone like Orson Welles, who mm-hmm. uh, I think it was even in his contract that he was, you know, writing, producing all that. And that's why he, uh, the, the original contract wrote Manquitz out of the, the screenwriting credit. Um, and so, How interesting is it, though, that this comes from somebody that this movie comes from somebody who is himself an auteur? Yeah, you know, it is, that is very <laughs> like, interesting. yeah, like uh, yeah. a person, a person making a movie arguing for you to credit the writer. And I mean, uh, this writer, was written director, by yeah. somebody else. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was written by a relative, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Yeah. Um. But I mean, ultimately, he is a writer director, and he he does, um, yeah, ultimately get all. He is ultimately going to be the one who gets all the credit for this film, you know. Yeah. So yeah, um, that's a very good point. Yeah, it's just an interesting. It is an interesting <laughs> parallel, and I'm not saying he. It is his movie, clearly. Yeah. But um, 
will we wonder <laughs> will there be an origin story years from now about how much of this movie is him and how right. much is his dad right yeah. like i mean <laughs> are we gonna get that meta um yikes uh, and uh anyway but um uh yeah no it's a it's an interesting concept and i think that's ultimately what the purpose of the movie is i think the purpose mm-hmm. of the film is to uh make sure that it is to give some credit to writers who mm-hmm. don't get credit yeah mm-hmm. so and that, that seems to be so i watched a like a youtube explainer video talking about the, the history of uh, of the debate around this and and one big thing in it is that uh in 1971 pauline kale the renowned mm-hmm. film critic she wrote this piece that basically said what this movie says that orson welles did almost nothing and that uh, herman mankiewicz wrote all this and didn't get any credit uh and it yeah. seems like since then scholars have pretty much debunked that and said that pauline kale was way off that he actually had a lot to do uh wells had a lot to do with this and uh, so that's that's another interesting thing. So it, it seems like since Pauline Kael, her theory has been uh, proven wrong, and yet this movie's kind of siding with her in a way. Uh, and, and interestingly, too, mm-hmm. well, one thing I read is that David Fincher said at some point that um, he he did edit the Mank script that his father wrote uh, because he felt it was too anti Orson Welles. So I can only imagine, yeah, because this this definitely isn't like a pro Orson Welles film. Um, so, so that's yeah. an interesting. Thing that it was even more uh anti in a way apparently in the well i mean you cut, can't yeah. deny you can't deny if you watch this and kane you can't deny that um the this the way the movie exists in this vacuum in mm. 1941 where all of the stuff that's in the movie didn't happen before the film was made. And, you know, Herman Mankiewicz had been working in Hollywood for a decade at that point. And, um, and the other people who were in the film had been working for a long time and surely, and maybe it's part that this movie was made without very much um, interference from the studio. And so all of these people were able to go as far as they were able to creatively, but you Mm. can't, take Orson Welles out of that because yeah. clearly he had an influence in mm-hmm. the narrative structure in the, um, in the uh, editing style and mm-hmm. the cinematography, like clearly y- you can't take yeah. Wells out of that. Right. And that's so much so. of the legacy of it is the technical genius of it and all of that. And, and actually that, that maybe kind of transition too, cause I wanted to talk about, there are some interesting connections between Mank and Citizen Kane, uh, even like stylistically structurally. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, how, do, what do you have thoughts uh, around that? I, I have to say like, uh, this is probably the area that's going to get the most praise. And yet it's where mm-hmm. I start to have some issues. Interesting. Um, yes. Uh, I, couldn't okay this is something a problem that a lot of people probably will not have but i after living in la for so long have seen a lot of movies on 35 millimeter film Mm. in movie theaters yeah and we don't do that anymore as a culture Mm. everything's digital but there are lots of movies that are still shot on 35 millimeter because people want to have the look yeah. of a 35 millimeter film um because there is something about it that mm-hmm. 
I think is a noticeable quality mm. that is kind of magical. Mm. Um, and if you want an example of that, you can look at, um, I mean, last year, a Netflix movie called marriage story came yeah. out and it was shot on film. And mm. if you watch it, you can tell there is a quality mm-hmm. about it that maybe isn't as crisp as digital, but there right. is a quality about digital that can look as detailed as it may be, it can look really flat. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. my issue with the visual look was that I felt quite often the picture looked like desaturated color hmm. and not like black and white because right. it was very clearly shot on digital and then everything was done in post. Yeah. And I really question why all of this work was done to mimic technology that Fincher clearly had the budget hmm. and the ability to use. Yeah. <laughs> like he could have just yeah. gotten black and white film stock and shot it on film. Because mm-hmm. if you would use black and white film stock, then you would have been able to. Because what the movie doesn't have visually is the blacks are not black Hmm. yeah (laughs) you know there's something in digital where it's the blacks kind of have a gray about them and that contrast is what i feel was missing it felt very soft for the starkness of what black and white is yeah so that is something i could tell they were trying they I and there's times where trying is a little too much for me because you know you have the little cigarette burn yeah, you have film noise. from the real yeah. changes mm-hmm. and all that stuff and it's a cute touch but it's <laughs> it's fake yeah. you know <laughs> yeah when and you could have done the real thing when you could have done the real I just yeah. am very confused he it's also not like Fincher hasn't shot on film for yes mm-hmm. for the last decade he shot digitally but he. <laughs> He clearly, up until the late 2000s, shot on film. He knows how to do it. He Netflix was will, threw clearly a ton of money into this film. They could have afforded film. I don't understand. It really confuses me. Um, and I think it, I think the movie would have really benefited from that. There's still some amazing sequences mm-hmm. visually, and all mm-hmm. of the shot selections, angles, yeah, and what they're going for with lighting is great. But I. I challenge somebody on Twitter posted a picture of a shot of Johnny Depp walking between sound stages in Ed Wood Hmm. and then a similar shot from uh, from this movie. Hmm. And just looking at the two side by side, you can see there is a classic quality that is missing. Wow. I would love to yeah. find that tweet and, and try to link that because that sounds really interesting. Yeah, that, that's yeah. A, a criticism that is really interesting and one that I, I didn't really think of. I did think, I don't know, thinking about like digital black and white, that's something that, uh, so like in this film, they were clearly trying so hard to make it seem authentically, you know, of, of that period, um, or at least mm-hmm. mimic that in a way that's artistically creative. Uh, but then I think about something like Roma a couple of years ago with uh, Alfonso yeah. Cuaron, where he very intentionally said, we're going to go digital and black and white and like embrace the digital. And that film is breathtakingly beautiful, I think, uh, because he's not trying to make it 
like an older black and white movie uh he, mm-hmm. he's kind of pushing to something kind of creatively new so anyway yeah no i mean yeah. it's it's there there's a reason that you make certain decisions as yeah. and, and and whether or not you choose to shoot on film or digital which they do both quite frequently today mm-hmm. there's a reason why there's i mean like a lot of the big budget films end up being film um it's because they want a certain look yeah. and as great an advance as digital has made in the last decade there is still a quality that is mm-hmm. very hard to mimic because film is a physical medium yeah, it's real in a as way. opposed yeah. to di- <laughs> as opposed to a digital medium yeah. i mean it is something where you are you are capturing something with light on a physical um piece of celluloid and that intrinsically has a depth to it that cannot be mimicked mm. with a series of numbers yeah and you're right this seems like a perfect perfect film to just choose film like if you have given the choice why not choose film in this case also weird to choose the why not why not go with the classic aspect ratio oh, yeah you know think of that yeah like that's that i mean I mean, I understand maybe you didn't want to do that to confuse people, but why go with, they didn't even go with, um, 16, nine, they right. went with, uh, two to one. And yeah. why, why do that when you could have more aptly, um, mimicked the peer? It's just like yeah. some, mm-hmm. it's just with as the amount of intention that went into, um, every aspect of the, art direction yeah. and the post-production end of this it's just confusing to me why they yeah. didn't make things so much easier <laughs> yeah that, that's incredibly valid to my ears that makes yeah. a lot of sense and yeah. on that note too one one thing that they did to kind of be quote-unquote authentic was uh i read about the score which is trent reznor and atticus ross who i'm a big fan of and th- i think this is a good score it's not like my favorite score of the year but uh, they used all kind of period instruments which is unusual for them mm-hmm. because they usually do all this uh electronic uh, like i thought the, the score was great yeah i really liked the score i will say that it's a departure in a way yeah yeah the sound design too yeah yeah the sound design it takes a little getting used to when you're first watching because it um and i couldn't decide if i liked it for a little bit because uh it is harder to make out and there were times where i felt like it was harder to make out than watching an actual movie of the period Mm, but um but it does it did sound like the mm-hmm. way I think of the sound design of Citizen Kane. Yeah. Being I like reading a tweet or something about that. They, the recording equipment they used mimicked that it does. It sounds, it sounds different. It sounds kind of quote unquote, I don't know, old timey or something, which is funny too. Tinny. Yeah. Tinny in tinny. a way. Yeah. Like yeah. there's almost a little echo to it or something. Um, but it also yeah. sounded rich in a way too. So it, and I listened through AirPods while on my <laughs> streaming box. So how, <laughs> how hilarious to hear like uh, old timey audio in the most, and I appreciate way, you know? I appreciate that when people were driving in cars, you know, the backdrop looked mm. like a rear projection as opposed yeah. to like I, I get the intentionality of that stuff. And I yeah. do appreciate that. It's really it's just really the one thing. Like, why didn't they shoot on film? That's the yeah. only thing it, it ever that's it also would have really helped them in covering up how Gary Oldman was much older than the character he was playing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Um, Gary Oldman does a great job. I don't want to 
I don't want to. Um, yeah. But he is at a lot of this movie is supposed to be in his 30s. And no matter how hard a life you lived. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're not going to look like you're in your fifth. You're not going to look 60 when you're in your. <laughs> yeah. When you're in your uh, I think he's 58 in real life. You're not going to look 58 when you're 32. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that yeah, is that's interesting thing, too. I, I read a little it was just some of his thoughts about playing this character. And he's used to playing under lots of prosthetics. And he has Winston Churchill last year in a lot of different makeups. And just all the crazy Harry Potter characters he's played and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so to, to have nothing. And this was an, a choice by David Fincher and uh, kind of an interesting one. Yeah. To, yeah. I think it really works for his for the pre, for the quote unquote. The present, present day time. yeah the 1940 1941 stuff that stuff makes sense to me um it's just when we we flash back i feel like the the stuff between him and marion davies uh is a little harder to i mean it helps yeah. that william randolph hearst is so much older than her mm. that mm. that he doesn't seem as that much older than her but yeah. i think they're supposed they're supposed to be in the same age range so yeah or almost the same age exactly they definitely don't Um, feel that way in some of those yeah conversations they don't feel like contemporaries they still Mm -hmm. feel like a father-daughter yeah um you know i mean i i I don't want to all of this criticism aside i still think it's a good movie yeah i'm just i'm just providing i'm doing that thing where you critique film (laughs) you know (laughs) yes of course um (laughs) well speaking of the flashbacks i think that's that's one of the things that i thought was you know probably a good uh choice plot wise to mimic citizen kane in a way that we have uh we're jumping around in time it's not as complex as citizen kane which jumps back and forth and sideways and forward where this is Mm -hmm. you know pretty much one storyline with with cuts back but i think it's an effective way to um provide context for you know yeah the quote-unquote present day of the story so i thought the plotting of it and the and all the dialogue was really well written the writing was i i think the writing was the was strongest element Mm -hmm. uh aside from as i said i do and i think gary oldman gives a great performance i'm just only talking about age difference here uh being being a little confusing uh because you know it's only you you can almost like get away with it just because you don't really know how old he is um until the moment where he says his age and he says he's 42 and you're just like oh Mm, interesting (laughs) (laughs) it's not the age i was getting yeah yeah. watching this Uh um but i mean uh it still is a it still is a very good movie and the writing is good Okay. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I would think so. I need to like. I'm sure someone will break this down in the next week or two. But I, there are several parallel shots that I noticed between Citizen Kane and Mank. To mm-hmm. you know, laying in a hospital bed and someone kind of coming in soft focus in the background. And that that happens like a few times here, and I seem to remember that from Citizen Kane. Um, are there other things like that that I'm I'm missing? That were kind of like um, Easter eggs almost. The, I, I noticed I, I mentioned this earlier, the um, the scene with the election, mm. the editing style during that period in particular mm. reminded me of several of the montage sequences that are in yeah. mm-hmm. Citizen Kane um, and, you know, the the montage sequences that mix in those extreme close ups and the, mm. um, I, I, there was um I, a lot of it, I don't even think was necessarily direct visual nods. Just mm. the, you could tell that 
uh, the way they were framing and editing and lighting things was uh, yeah. very much uh, yeah. in in ode mm-hmm. to Citizen Kane. So you mentioned earlier um, kind of the age difference there. I wanted to mention, too, uh, Charles Dance, I think, does a great job. He's not in mm-hmm. it very much, but, I mean, I know him primarily from Game of Thrones. I know he's in a lot more stuff than that, um, but I thought he was really good, particularly in the scene near the end, the kind of the dinner party that goes wrong, uh, and just kind of his his reactions to, to Gary Oldman and uh, almost an amused kind of a face, but obviously exuding a lot of like power and like dis- distaste as well. I-, I thought it was really uh, a good performance from him. Yeah, no, Charles Dance was uh, was very very good as <laughs> William Randolph Hearst. I enjoyed all of the locations they used. Yeah, as well, it was nice to. Although I will say Easter egg for anyone who's curious they do use a like they are on the paramount lot when they're on the paramount lot interesting they are outside of mgm gates during that scene where he mm-hmm. gives the old uh homeless um friend of his a dollar yeah, yeah, yeah um and uh you do see those um real life locations but what i thought was so interesting is they depict a scene that really did happen of um Marion Davies uh, moved her production company from MGM uh, to Warner Brothers, and there was a she had a huge bungalow um, that they dismantled and took away on truck beds yeah, over to yeah. from Culver City, which is where MGM was located, over to Burbank where Warner Brothers is. And the funny thing is, the scene where that happens, um, they are on the Warner Brothers lot. When it's supposed to be MGM, they uh, clearly added in the huge MGM sign and post, but <laughs> he he runs up um, and he's right by stage 15 at WB, uh, which when I was a tour guide there, I helped do audience load ins for Conan O'Brien, who was shooting at the stage <laughs> at the time. And then the reverse shot still shows stage uh, 20 and 25 with uh, the backside of the back lot of New York Street on the opposite side of 25. Um, 25 is where they shot Big Bang Theory. And <laughs> um, so that line of stages they're showing is Warner, is Brothers. Warner Brothers. Wow. <laughs> and so she's already where she's supposedly she's trucking her sets. Yeah, she's already chucking the that bungalow over too. So uh, I don't know why they couldn't get on uh <laughs> They, they were showing the outside of the MGM lot mm. earlier, which is now where Sony Pictures is located. But um, I guess they couldn't either. They couldn't get onto the they couldn't get inside the gate for whatever reason, or they um, or maybe they just didn't uh, think it had the look they wanted for the scene because they yeah. have that's that studio has been updated a little bit more in appearance than Paramount or Warner Brothers has been. So. I don't know. This is why we have rants on the podcast because who else would have <laughs> this this deep cut knowledge of the lots they shot on? It's fascinating. I love it. Once a tour guide, always a tour guide. <laughs> um, I was a tour guide at Warner Bros. for three and a half years. If you have any questions about that lot, please let me know. <laughs> rants I, <knows> it all. <laughs> I love it. I know it. And that's yes. There you go. <laughs> Well, I wanted to. But in case you're wondering, they shot Citizen Kane. If you want to know where they shot Citizen oh, Kane, yeah. they shot it between the two RKO lots. There are two. Mm-hmm. Uh, RKO was spread out across a couple of lots, um, but there is one 
that it was right by Paramount and that uh, lot and Paramount eventually absorbed hmm. uh, that lot after RKO went under. There was a brief period where it was held by Desi Lou, but then Desi Lou was bought by Paramount, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, uh, and then there was a lot right across the street from AMGM um, in uh, Culver City, which is where uh, another other parts of Citizen Kane were hmm. likely shot. So interesting on Washington Boulevard. There you go. <laughs> there you um, go. So RKO, yeah. that's the studio who was behind it. Uh, there's also a really great movie. If you enjoyed this one, there's a really great HBO film called RKO 281. Is that right? 281? I think that's right. Yeah, I haven't watched it. Yeah. You mentioned it on the Citizen Kane episode. <laughs> that's why I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a great film uh, that has also has a great cast um, that talks about the making of Citizen Kane with more of a slant towards uh, Orson Welles. Interesting. A and, nice double feature um, with this then. Yeah, it tells a very different. It's like it's arguing the other side of this, yeah, wow. basically. So that is mm-hmm. very interesting. With Herman, I don't remember Herman Mangotes having a very large part in that. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. Anyway, uh, well, I want to ask you to just and kind of a side question, just about David Fincher. Um, I haven't seen all of his work, but I think. Um, I, I, how does this compare to other David Fincher movies for you? And do you feel any? commonalities between any of them it seems kind of unique in a way among his other filmography i mean like i guess benjamin button would be the closest mm, yeah yeah think of that yeah yeah because uh that one's the only other one i can think of that has that hollywood old hollywood feel to it yeah uh-huh. um because this doesn't connect at all in my head to gone girl yeah, or yeah. fight club or yeah I agree, um okay. any of any of those films this feels it's a totally different it's a totally different fincher for sure yeah the the only commonality i could think of was possibly with the social network because it it is kind of you know behind the scenes of mm. business kind of decisions and and backstabbing and kind of intrigue and all of that and there actually is a a little bit of a parallel moment that i felt with um in the social network you remember there's a, a kind of a famous scene where uh, Andrew Garfield's character runs in and smashes the laptop, uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's laptop. Oh, yeah. And there's sort of oh, a parallel yeah. here towards the end, which I, don't, I won't spoil, but something gets smashed because of a, a business dispute uh, near the end of this film, too. So I think that's that's kind of a funny. And I mean, it's real life people. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is uh, so this is the, his next. I think those are the only two biographical. Yeah movies he's done yeah i'm looking at his so, filmography i think that's true I mean, besides mindhunter yeah. with his netflix show which i have not watched but it's all oh, you know yes true, mindhunter is, i forgot things. but um, uh, i haven't watched mindhunter either but um i'm kind of afraid but to. <laughs> I, i've heard it's very <laughs> yeah. good i probably yeah, yeah, yeah. enjoy it i do enjoy true crime so yeah um but uh yeah no this is um it's interesting. I still think I think Gone Girl is my favorite venture. I think that's that actually remains... one I haven't seen. Amazingly, I've seen the game, uh, and uh, which I really liked the game back in the day. Um, and I've seen I think mm-hmm. everything else except for Zodiac. I haven't seen Zodiac either. Oh, Zodiac! So I need oh, to maybe maybe Zodiac. Oh, and that's I a like, true. That's I like a true Zodiac. story too. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Oh, I did forget about that. But Zodiac is a true story. But it also it is it's like. Uh, JFK in a way his version of JFK I guess you could say because it presents a um 
it presents a theory. Yeah, interesting. To who the it, it, it makes a decision on who it thinks the Zodiac killer is, which um, is not a known fact because we do not know who the Zodiac was. That's so, a great point. In a way, uh, this movie does that with about who wrote Citizen Kane. <laughs> you know, it's it's saying, well, we're going to present a, this side. So maybe, maybe but I should... wouldn't I wouldn't connect these. I mean, like the thing that's different <laughs> about that, the thing that's different about Gone Girl, and the social like those are those are still linear. Mm, yeah movies uh-huh. you know which i think is why maybe benjamin mutton feels like the yeah the yeah, most because yeah, yeah. it's it does it does, it does jump back and forth mm-hmm. and it goes it does show segments of time in a life so yeah interesting it revo- it relies very heavily it was shot on film but it relies mm-hmm. very heavily on digital effects <laughs> um yes. post-production yes, yes. so <laughs> um interesting <laughs> uh but anyway, um, no, yeah, no, this is, it, it's a good, I think I give it three and a half out of five. All right. Interesting. I probably go a little yeah. higher, but, um, I'm not sure. I always take forever to actually think of a star rating on Letterboxd and stuff. <laughs> so I put way too much pressure on myself, but yeah. I sometimes revise, but I like, yeah. I like to see, I like to like put my gut out there yeah. before I mm-hmm. think too much about it. Cause I, I, your initial reaction is still your yeah it's important and i also want to do it before i get influenced by any anything anyone right. else says yeah yeah you know so yes um anywho what i think the the funny thing is like um <laughs> you know i recently went through all of the james bond movies yeah um so whenever you do a no time to die episode let me know <laughs> yes. um whenever that ends up coming out yes you'll be a um, person yeah but um but it's funny if you would look through my my James Bond rating, you would discover that I you can question my taste and everything I've said because <laughs> I I gave Moonraker four out of five stars, but I gave Mank three and a half out of. <laughs> you have the opposite take of most people on James Bond movies. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. Moonraker is a lot of fun. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> that's another huge thing I haven't. I haven't seen that many James Bond movies. I've not seen Moonraker, but I, I understand it's uh, uh, man. It's not in considered space. the best, generally. It's in space. <laughs> it's there in are, space. There, there they, it, there's he doesn't have his usual gun. He has a he has a a laser. Yeah, <laughs> my my point of reference for Moonraker is in the video game, the N64 uh-huh. game. There's a Moonraker gun, and it's a laser gun. <laughs> so I think that's it, like a, there you go. There is a whole in space laser gun battle in Moonraker. Oh, so I think you like can play that in the game. I thought you were referencing the game. Sorry, I'm the video game. No, this on. is in the movie. <laughs> in a James Bond movie, there is he is in space on a space station, giving having a laser gun fight. And if you can't have a good time watching that, something's wrong. <laughs> then you don't deserve to watch movies. <laughs> you heard it here. <laughs> exactly that's hilarious uh, well it sounds like we both recommend mank uh so go watch yes. mank it is streaming now on netflix and um thank you again so much for coming back and yes for real if we do no time to die you'll be my go-to uh on that <laughs> so um welcome back anytime thank you appreciate it 
thank you so much for listening to this episode of Art House Garage. We've got a few years worth of episodes now. You can hear all of those in your podcast app of choice. If you want to support Art House Garage, you can leave a rating or review in your podcast app, or you can buy an Art House Garage t-shirt or hat. We have some cool merch at arthousegarage.com shop. You can stay in the loop about Arthouse Garage and the things we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter. That is at arthousegarage.com slash subscribe. Or you can always email me directly, Andrew, at arthousegarage.com. And of course, follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search at Arthouse Garage in all those places or find links in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free. Mm-hmm.